afternoon to all of you. It's very good to be here. Looks like we have a few people missing for the, I think, a ski weekend someplace and other factors, but uh, we have nevertheless a good attendance once again. We have a, a hymn book, and I think we enjoy the hymns that we have in the book, and quite a few of them are written from the Psalms. On page 85, we have one such hymn, page 85, unless the Lord shall build the house. I think this is one of our favorite hymns. We sing it quite often. The first verse says, unless the Lord shall build the house, the weary builders toil in vain. Unless the Lord the city shields, the guards maintain a useless watch. In vain you rise ere morning break. And late your nightly vigils keep, and bread of anxious care partake, God gives to his beloved sleep. Now that's a very interesting uh, verse there, and we sing it all the time. The question is, do we really understand it and do we apply it? One of the things I've been trying to do in recent years is to make sure that I meditate on what it is that I'm singing. And... I've made a little progress, certainly don't succeed all the time. It's so easy for our minds to drift away, and we're singing words without understanding what the meaning of them is. For example, we sang page number 90 today in our hymn book, and I was noticing at the end of it there, at the, uh, the last verse, the last two lines, it says, Great your name, eternal God, great your fame forevermore. Both endure to every age and to generations yet to come. So when this was written, it was saying that God's name would remain great forevermore. Not just for that time then, but for all times. Both endure to every age. That means that it endures to this age in which we are living. And when we think about these words, when we are singing them, it becomes even more meaningful to us because we realize that we're not only praising God, but we're getting a sermon or a sermonette in the process. And so it's very important that we understand the words that we sing. These come right out of Scripture, right out of the Bible, many of them from the Psalms, as the one on page 85, which is Psalm 127. Notice the words as we read them actually out of Scripture. Let's turn over to page 1, or not page, but Psalm 127. Let's just read it. It's very similar to the words of the, the hymn that we sing. But let's read it actually out of the Bible itself. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Now it's interesting that the commentaries suggest that in this particular psalm we have two fragments that are put together. That's the first fragment, and they say that the second fragment begins at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, or the eternal. The fruit of the womb is a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, there is a connection here because it is showing that it is God that must be involved in the process for it to be successful, whether it be building a house or guarding a city or, for that matter, having children. We look at all those things as physical things that can be done. We can build a house. And in our neighborhood, they're building a few houses, and they're going up fairly quickly. And I'm sure that God is not in the process of building those houses. But they're physical houses in that sense. And God is certainly talking about something more than just a physical house here. We have our nation, whatever our nation might be, wherever it might be. We have armies to protect our nations. And we have watchmen, you might say, to protect our borders. And so it says the watchman stays, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so we look at these things in a very physical way. And then we get down to verse 3, and it shows that children are a heritage from the Lord. And they truly are, as some of us very well know. It is not just an automatic thing that happens. Uh, We often think of it that way, but those who uh, do not have children, my wife and I do not, uh, for various reasons, I suppose. Uh, We will know someday why she was able to uh, get pregnant uh, four times, but uh, not carry them to term. There are others who are not able to even have uh, that far in the process. And then there are those who I grow up thinking they're going to get married and don't end up getting married. And so there are all kinds of factors that, that play into it. But it is a, a gift from God. And God gives some people one gift and he gives some other people other gifts. And I think that in my case, our case, looking back on it, we can see certain benefits, certain ways that our lives were directed that would not have been directed that way uh, had we had children at the time. And to be honest with you, when we look at how some kids come out, we're kind of glad. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean that. We have wonderful kids here. Well, I do mean it. Uh, I, uh, I, I do know some of the struggles that people have had in raising children, and it isn't always so easy. It's very difficult, especially in our world today. And so God gives us the blessings that he knows that we need, And he gives us the trials that he knows that we need as well. But it's easy to read these words and not to really apply them in ways that maybe they should be applied. So today, we're going to meditate or think about and discuss and apply them in our lives as uh, would be profitable for us to do so. I'm going to look at the psalm and explore what it should mean to us. And primarily, I'm going to focus on the first two verses. So let's, again, preface this by saying that if you read the commentaries, you'll find all kinds of speculation, such as that these were fragments and so forth. Uh, Some think that this particular psalm was written by Solomon. And in fact, some of the manuscripts mention the name of Solomon as a heading. Uh, others believe that it was written by David to Solomon. 
Uh, some think that it was written in part regarding Solomon's temple, the building of the temple, the house of God, you might say. And while others think it had more to do with the second temple or the time involved with Ezra and Nehemiah, guarding the city, building the house, etc. But all of this is speculation, it's opinion, it's interesting. But the problem with speculation sometimes is that it, it obscures the obvious and that which is most important, the lesson that God wants us to have. When we look at this psalm carefully, we find that there, it is contrasting two different approaches. The first one, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, unless God is involved, uh, notice, unless the Lord guards the city, unless God is involved in the city and the guarding of it. And then the opposite part is that, or the other side of the, the coin, is that if God is not involved with building the house or guarding the city, uh, the, they labor in vain who build it. It's a vain pursuit in the end. Or the watchman stays awake in vain. He may be guarding the city, but it may be in vain. It may not prove to be fruitful in that context. And then it says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, where we can put forth great effort, great energy, getting up early, staying up late, missing sleep in the pursuit of a goal but if God is not a part of it, then it doesn't work out as well. It may not work out at all. It is vain to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. As some commentaries bring out, that even every meal has to be a meeting. Every activity is involved with a pursuit. We have people who want to get ahead in life, and so they spend all of their energy doing so, but they leave God out of the picture. And if God is not involved, then rising early and staying up late is in vain. It does not mean that we should not work hard, because there are so many scriptures that point that out, that we should put forth effort. But without God being involved, without Him being at the center of our pursuits, especially in the kind of pursuits that we would normally Thank God, I'm not talking about the world, but uh, for us, doing the work of God and building our spiritual house, if God is not a part of it, if He's not central to it, if He is not guiding it, then it is in vain. I remember a young man some years ago, I think he was about 26 years of age at the time, he'd gone through Ambassador College. Most young men by that time would have been baptized. But he saw others being baptized, and he thought, I don't want to be on that, you know, follow the leader. He didn't want to do what others were doing because he saw some people that may not have been sincere. They were just following the crowd, and he didn't want to follow the crowd. And he woke up about age 26 or so. He'd gone through ambassador college. He'd actually gotten another degree, and he was working in the world. And he woke up, and he said to himself one day, if I die... All of the things I do, keeping the Sabbath, paying my tithes, doing all these things that we do, avoiding unclean meats, is in vain. It's for nothing. 
if I don't have my sins forgiven, I'm putting forth all this effort. And he realized that it would all be in vain if he didn't follow through on everything that he should. To be baptized, to receive of God's Holy Spirit by the laying out of hands afterward, and to have Jesus Christ actually living in him. He was doing all on it, doing it all on his own, and God was not really involved in it. Now, I'm sure that God was involved in his life and bringing him to that place, but he had that epiphany, you might say, that awakening moment when he realized that he could do all these things in vain. We had the president's speech the other night, president of the United States, and it was an interesting speech. Many of the ideas that he presented make good sense to all except those who are totally blinded by hatred. Uh, this does not mean that I'm endorsing everything he said or endorsing him. But I think that most rational people would agree with many of the points that he made. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all, or at least most, of the lofty dreams that he presented could come to pass? For example, every nation wants to be safe and secure. What nation doesn't want that? Every nation, if it has borders, well, it must have borders, I should say, uh, or it simply isn't a nation. And so there's, I think if we stop and think about it, every nation has to have borders. Our nation here must have borders. Canada must have a border. Well, it's got borders all the way around, but I mean especially one where it has a close neighbor. And we've had a few squabbles down through time between Canada and the United States, the War of 1812 for certain. And uh, even before that, but every nation, European nations, African nations, South American nations, must have borders that are secure. What nation doesn't want to stop drug abuse? I think we would be foolish to think that this was not a noble idea that was presented there. Every nation wants to be prosperous and have a, an ongoing economy that is benefiting its people. But I think we all know that while these are lofty ideals and goals that must be held out to lift up any nation, saying something and accomplishing it are two different horses. How does one bring about the, uh, the goal of doing away with drug abuse? It's nice and easy to say if we just build a wall, that will stop it. But it's a multifaceted problem. We have a nation who does not teach its youth the purpose for life. Why we're here. What our grand goal is. Other than just having fun. Living for today. And the end result is there is that desire for drugs. And they don't all come from outside the country. Many of them are homegrown or home produced the chemicals that make methamphetamines, for example. They don't have to bring those in from outside. They can do that right here. And I've known at least, you know, one couple that were producing those uh, uh, methamphetamines. And, and so that's something that you can't build a wall to stop. 
It's a lofty goal. We would all believe that it's something we should do. But unless God is in our efforts, it's all going to be in vain. Because God needs to be involved in our nations. He needs to be at the heart and the core, at the center of our laws and our way of life. And if he is not, then all of these goals are going to be in vain. We may make some progress here and there, but we will never accomplish the full goal that we we, uh, seek. There's something that is left out by virtually all politicians and leaders around the world, and as I am obviously implying, and that is God. God is left out of the picture. Now, he may be mentioned. God is mentioned from time to time in the speeches of some politicians. And for some politicians, I truly believe that God is in their thoughts. When one is put into a very high position, wherever that might be, in whichever country it might be, there are politicians who are changed by that. They realize the magnitude of what's come down upon them, that they have attained what they have sought, and now they realize how difficult it is, and so God does become important. And I do believe that a number of our presidents here in the United States, and I'm sure that presidents and prime ministers and chancellors of other nations have sought God's guidance in their own way, in their own understanding, to whatever limited degree they have, that they have prayed to Him. But others, God is likely an afterthought at best. They don't see God in the picture. But one thing we know, our so-called Christian nations have rejected God's way. God's way of doing things. They may seek God, but they seek Him in their own way. As an example, Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, a very familiar scripture to us, but I'd like to focus on uh, the verses that may not be as familiar. He says in verse 1, thus says the Lord, or the eternal, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, or the Eternal. But on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. I wonder how many of our politicians that mention the name of God, too often for votes, too often to appeal to the evangelical element within our society here in the United States, and in different countries, in different ways, appeal to God simply to please the people, to make themselves look better in the eyes of some of their constituents. How many of them truly tremble at God's Word? I think we would recognize if they truly trembled at the Word of God, they wouldn't be where they are. They wouldn't be politicians. They would recognize that that's not God's way of doing things. But to whatever limited degree they they may search for God or seek after God, God may bless that nation or that individual, but do they tremble at the word of God? He who kills a bull, verse 3, is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is as if he breaks a dog's neck. 
He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. Can you imagine that? Offering swine's blood on the altar before God. And yet he says, he who burns incense, in other words, doing the thing that they were to do, as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. Verse 4, Isaiah 66, verse 4, So will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Why? Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes. And notice this, last part of verse 4, And chose that in which I do not delight. This is the problem. If you connect the first chapter of Isaiah with the last chapter, you see that they did various rituals. They performed sacrifices, but they didn't do it really for the right reason. And while they were doing them, they were also choosing their own ways. And so God says here, they chose that in which I do not delight. And so even their religious ceremonies, their worship of God, became an abomination in the sight of God. And instead of offering a lamb, they might as well offer uh, swine's blood because they did all the ritual, but they didn't do it from the heart the way that they should. Worse yet, not only have we rejected the ways of God, we have in our Western world rejected the very existence of God. And how many young people go off to university today to have the president stomp on the Bible or spit on the Bible? Or as one man I remember quite a few years ago said that the professor just lifted up his fist and started cursing God. And then he began to pump them full of evolutionary ideas in the biology class and get rid of God, try to get rid of God. Well, God will deal with that individual someday. But he allows a lot right now to test and try the rest of us to see what we're going to do. But our nations have rejected God. Notice Leviticus 26. And this is written to all the Israelite nations. But really this goes beyond the Israelite nations, although frankly the other nations around the world, the Gentile nations, in many ways have much, a much greater God consciousness than our Israelite nations. We seem to be leading the way in the wrong direction. Leviticus 26, and this is very familiar to us, verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. And that's where we are. We don't just neglect God. We don't just try different ways of worshiping God. We despise everything about God as I say we, not you and me, but our Western nations, our Israelite nations that have been given so very much, so many blessings. We have despised our Creator. I won't take time to repeat all the sins that we know our nations are committing, but I'll just mention one, what I would consider to be uh, not the greatest of all sins, 
But I want to mention it because it is so easy for us to miss this sort of thing in Leviticus 19. We have a lot of young people. We have new people coming into the church. And they need to know what the laws of God are. And they need to see the the path that this world is going, the direction the world is going. And it's amazing to me how so many people are sheep-like. They will follow the leader. And if someone pierces his tongue, everybody decides they want to have a pierced tongue. If somebody decides to pierce their eyebrow, they're going to pierce their eyebrow. I remember seeing a lady one time in a Tim Hortons up in Canada where uh, it was everybody was kind of staring at her because she had this funny haircut. I don't know how to describe it, but it was kind of V-shaped and, and shaved around here and then kind of long in the back. And she had so much facial hardware that if she, she had all this stuff hanging from one ear and she had enough to counterbalance her, otherwise she'd be walking around sideways. But she had hardware all over her face. And for some reason, what was a really fringe idea at one time suddenly has become more mainstream, although I think, thankfully, some of that is is going away. But one thing's not going away is tattoos. And so everybody seems to think they need a tattoo today. It's hard to see a basketball player or any athlete today who doesn't have a tattoo. And certainly every rock star or celebrity has to have a whole arm or uh, you know, body full of them. But here in verse uh, 28, it says, You shall, make, shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the eternal. Now, if we are so easily led astray, like we have a ring in our nose that Satan is pulling on this particular issue what about the other issues in society? Sometimes I hear people say, well, the world is ahead of the church on this. And that ought to be a huge red flag that says, wait a minute. When was the world ever ahead of the church? So if the world is going a particular direction, they're beginning to change the way that society looks we ought to stop and say, well, wait a minute. Are they right? Or is the church right? In fact, even if we don't know what the church says about a particular issue, when we see the whole world going a certain direction, we ought to stop and say, whoa, wait a minute. What am I missing here? Because Satan is so subtle. He's very subtle. And he just takes us down that path that he wants us to go. So we need to look at the laws of God. We need to meditate on the laws of God. We need to know whether God is in something or if this is something that Satan is in. God warned Israel not to forget the source of their blessings. And when we look at our Israelite nations, we are so blessed. And I know that this may go out to others who are not a part of the Israelite nations as such. And you know that God has blessed the Israelite nations. Now, there are Gentile nations that he's also blessed very greatly. But there are a lot of nations around this world that haven't been so blessed. I wrote in a, a recent article or, or letter about the man who read our booklet on America and Britain and prophecy. He was from Colombia. 
And he, and he said to me, he said, finally, something makes sense. I knew you guys weren't smarter than us. And he was right. He was absolutely right. He wasn't trying to be obnoxious. He was just expressing something that had bothered him for years. Why is it that America is blessed and Colombia is not? Why is it that Canada is blessed? Why is it that Australia and New Zealand and uh, the British Isles are so blessed and some of the other countries around the world do not have the same blessings? I remember flying from Yuma, Arizona to uh, Los Angeles. I don't remember which airport, Burbank or one of them there. Uh, I, I was on a summer assignment. After my junior year of Ambassador College, I was sent out for 10 weeks to work in Arizona and Nevada under uh, Mr. Greer and another minister. And I, I remember that I was taken down to uh, uh, Yuma. Uh, we were doing some visiting there, and I was going to leave from Yuma. A very hot day. It, actually, they had a, a record uh, low that day, meaning it was, it, for, for the, the, it didn't, how would I describe this? Yeah, it was a record low. I guess that's the best way to say it. For that day, it got down to 66 degrees Fahrenheit that night. Uh, of course, during the day, it was well over 100, but I mean, that was a low to get down to 66. We, uh, we get much cooler than that in a lot of places in the world. But nevertheless, I, I remember that little detail of it. But I got on this plane, and I was sitting next to a fellow that was from Mexico. And, and we flew over the lower part of the Colorado River, which basically looked like uh, a canal or a ditch, concrete on the sides. And he looked down. He was sitting next to me, and he was by the window. And he said, you gringos take everything meaning that all the water was gone. Well, the river originated here, and his expression of uh, anger, I guess you might say, just slight anger, was understandable. But when you look at the United States as opposed to Mexico, uh, there is a difference, isn't there? There's a lot of... Lot of uh, desert land down there. Of course, there has been wealth in terms of oil. Uh, it's not been used properly by government, and so there are problems there. But we have been blessed immensely. Now, over in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, God warns us not to forget the source of these blessings. Notice in verse 10, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. It says, so it shall be, when the eternal your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. It's talking about that first generation going in there, or the generations that followed, but it's talking about the children of Israel going into that promised land. And the cities were already built. He says, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, verse 12, then beware lest you forget the eternal who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. He said, you have all these blessings. And when you are, have eaten and are full, 
And usually a generation or two goes by and the younger generation doesn't know the struggle that the previous generation had. And it gets easier as a nation prospers. Then he says, beware, lest you forget the eternal who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You forget how it all began. Notice over in verse, or chapter 8, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 11. It says, Beware that you do not forget the eternal your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. So now he's saying the time when you have built beautiful houses and you dwell in them, not the ones that they took over from those who were before. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, yes, they're growing and multiplying. These are things that happen after the first generation there. Uh, And your silver and your gold are multiplied. And all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. You might want to connect verse 16 back with verse 3. Just look at verse 3. It says, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the eternal. So God allows trials sometimes to come upon us, tests. The, the manna was a blessing. It was also a test because after 40 years, it didn't t- taste quite the same. In fact, they didn't have to wait 40 years. After a year, they were already tired of it. But God fed them. He took care of them. He sometimes allowed them to go two or three days without fresh water supplies to test them and to see what they would do. But he wanted them to know that man does not live by bread alone. That's not all that we work for in this life or all that we should work for in this life, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the eternal. Now back down to verse 17, it says, Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And if there's one sin that I think that we have as Americans and I think even more so than some of our other Israelite nations is the pride that we have of thinking that we did it, the rugged individual, that we have done it. We've done it by ourselves. And I've I've lived in Canada, I've lived in England, I, I just know that it's more here. Not that it doesn't exist elsewhere, but I think that we see it more that way ourselves. As though we have built everything in this land. We conquered the land. We've built this wealth. We've become number one in the world. And we think that we have done it by ourselves. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. 
And you shall remember the eternity of God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. It is God that makes it available to us. And yet we look on our capitalistic system, that that's the reason. If we look on our democracy, that's the reason. We look on our hard work, and we do work hard as Americans. It is true that Americans work longer hours and produce more on a a per capita basis than most other countries in the world, and certainly the the Western countries in general. There's no doubt about it. We're also known as good risk-takers. We do take risks. I always try to explain the difference a little bit between Canada and the U.S., and that uh, the, the ones who are in Canada were the loyalists, they call themselves loyalists, to the crown. And they were kind of forced out. And Americans are the ones who uh, want to throw the tea in the harbor. We throw the tea in the harbor and they praise the king or the queen. There's a lot of difference there. They were much more, much less reactionary at an early time. They wanted the status quo. They wanted to be loyal to the crown in spite of the difficulties. But we're made up of people who threw the tea in the harbor. And we didn't always think through the whole consequence of everything, but uh, that's, that's the way that we are. And, and we are great risk takers. But it's not because of that that we have the power. I think when we look at it, God intended there to be two nations on this continent. You might say three we count Mexico, but the war of 1812 was to uh, take, you know, all of Canada and the United States, you might say, but after we fought all these battles, in the end, it stayed the same, didn't it? The border stayed the same, because God wanted that separation. Can you imagine if our two nations were one nation, the great wealth of the north and you know, the energy of its people and our people, I mean, God would have seen us maybe as being too strong. And, of course, there are other differences there. But the point being that we tend to take credit for what we have. We think that we've done it ourselves. And yet it says, you shall remember, verse 18, the eternal your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. There was an overriding purpose why God did these things. He gave us this wealth because of his covenant, because of his promises that he had made. You might want to turn over to uh, Genesis, the 49th chapter, Genesis 49. And it is interesting of Joseph of Ephraim and Manasseh together. In Deuteronomy 33, it talks about how we will push our enemies to the ends of the earth, which we certainly saw in World War II. But here in Genesis 49, verse uh, verse 22, it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. And then it says, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. So it is the mighty God of Jacob, the eternal God, 
was made us strong. And when you think about it, when you go back to example of World War II, it was not all cut and dry who was going to win in one sense. There were some very difficult times for Ephraim, specifically for the British on the Isles of the British Isles. There were some very grim days. There were a lot of ships. When you study anything about World War II, the huge number of ships that are at the bottom of the ocean, I think something like 1,100. I just saw that the other day, but I don't remember the exact number. Maybe that was just in one year. But the tonnage of ships that were sunk, the number of planes that were shot down, it's an incredible history when you think about it. The carnage that took place. And it was not cut and dry who would win. Not at the beginning. In fact, many thought that Britain would fall. But it says here that by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That's how we've been made strong. And to think that we've done it all by ourselves is arrogant. And our house eventually is going to fall if God is not a part of it. It is God who builds the house. When we leave him out of our labors, things don't work out. We have an interesting story in the book of Ezra, the fourth chapter. We find that Cyrus made a proclamation for the Jews, some of the Jews, to go back to Jerusalem to build a house, to build a temple. And we read that they laid the foundation of the temple in chapter 3. And then chapter 4, it says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, this is verse 2, of chapter 4, verse 2, They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ezrahaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. These were the Samaritans, the ones that had had replaced the uh, ones of the, the northern tribes, and they had taken over that whole area, and they said, well, let us help build this temple. They knew that they were more numerous, and if they were involved in it, pretty soon it would be their temple, not the Jews' temple. And Zerubbabel saw through that, that ploy, that idea of, well, we just like to help out. Well, sometimes help is not what is needed. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. And we alone will build to the eternal God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then verse 4, it says, The people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors, translate, attorneys, lawyers, against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, most of Ezra is in chronological order, but 
this chapter kind of confuses it because verse 6 is telling about a, a future time of uh, persecution. And then verses 7 through 23 also speak of another time. So it kind of lumps together a couple of different persecutions there. But when you finish verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 5, it says, until the end of the, or till the reign of Darius, king of Persia, in chronological order, you would skip down to verse 24. And it says, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there was quite a length of time here where the temple was not being built. That was the reason that they were sent back there. But opposition set in. And they started bringing about, I guess we might call them today, lawsuits, injunctions to stop it. And the children of Judah apparently gave in. They allowed themselves to stop building the temple. And so for a period of time, from about 535, 536, something like that, on down to about 520, the, the temple was not being built, a period of 15, 16 years. And so then it says that it stopped until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. Now, what was it in the second year of Darius, king of Persia, that caused them to begin doing the work of God? Chapter 5, verse 1, because it, it shouldn't be a chapter break here. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who, who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. And because they did this, it says, verse 2, So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, what was it that these prophets said to them? Haggai and Zechariah. Well, let's go over to the book of Haggai. One of the minor prophets, toward the end of the minor prophets, Haggai and then Zechariah. And then after that, it's Malachi. So, Haggai. And let's go to the first chapter of Haggai. And we'll begin in verse 2. Well, let me start in verse 1. It says, In the second year of King Darius, remember what we read of there in, in Ezra, what is it? the second year of King Darius when these prophets stood up. So we could plug this right into that passage there in chapter 5, the first couple verses. It says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, Now this was what happened that 15 or 16 years there. It says, This people says, the time has not come, the time that the eternal's house should be built. They allowed these counselors, these individuals who began to give them obstacles, they allowed them to influence them to stop building. 
they thought, well, now must not be the time. I think that's really very interesting because what we see is that God allowed this persecution to take place. When you, when you look at the history of God's people down through time, we find that everything wasn't just smooth. It wasn't just easy going up to the top of the hill. There were obstacles in the way. There were difficulties. We've seen that happen in recent times in modern history. We've seen a number of crises that have happened within the church, the broad church of God, so to speak. We've had a lot of times that it's not gone smoothly. Now, sometimes it's because we're doing something wrong. Sometimes God allows these things to happen. We have the Apostle Paul where he says he was hindered. Satan hindered him from doing something. God allowed that to happen. And so God allows these things to test us and see what we're going to do. And in the case of the Jews of Ezra's day, what we find is that they said, well, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, this is what Haggai said. This is what people were thinking, whether they said it out loud or whether they just thought it. It says, then the word of the eternal came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Look at the facts. See what's happening. You've sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put in a bag with holes. So you're putting forth a lot of effort building your own houses, building your own way of life, your own society, building up Jerusalem as it were. You're doing all these things, but it's not working, is it? Lest the Lord builds the house, builders toil in vain. It was not working for them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Eternal. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Eternal of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. In other words, they had lost their focus. And God was not in their lives the way that he should have been. It's where they didn't see the most important thing that they should be doing. And the end result was that it just wasn't working. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, they rose up and they started doing the work of God. They started focusing where they should be. It's interesting that in the, uh, <clears throat> the book of, of uh, Nehemiah, back in Nehemiah, that's a little bit later, we find that the people did put God in what they were doing, in spite of obstacles were thrown in their way. I won't take too much time with this, but in Nehemiah, the first chapter, we see that some of 
Nehemiah's brethren had come back from Jerusalem to Shushan the citadel there in, in uh, Babylon or Persia, wherever he was. And uh, he asked how things were going, and they gave a very negative report. And when you look at what Nehemiah did, we read in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 4, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, eternal God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant of mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. And it goes on with his prayer. And he's praying to God that he would make a way that the city could be built because it was in ruins. The temple had been built by this time, but the city as a whole was not doing very well. And so we read in chapter 2 that it came to pass in the month of Nisan, or Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. The cupbearer was a trusted associate. He was the one that supposedly tested the wine to make sure that it was not poisonous. If he was in charge of it, uh, he couldn't slip something in there if he had to drink it first. And so he apparently was also an advisor to the king. We kind of get that impression here. But if he wasn't happy, that was not a good sign. And he said he became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, the way, lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? And I, I love this. He says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. He was instant in prayer. He asked God, Okay, you've opened a door. What do I do now? What do I do now? And he said, I prayed to the God of heaven. When you read through the book of Nehemiah, you see that God is at the center of everything that Nehemiah did. In verse 8, uh, verse 7, I'll start. It says, Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the Jordan, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, uh, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Notice he recognizes that this is God's doing, that God was a part of what he was doing. He had sought God for help to know what to do, and now he's finding that God is working things out. And he gives credit to God, and he's not afraid or ashamed to do so. Down in verse 18, uh, he's come to Jerusalem now. And he's talking with the elders, and he says, I told them, verse 18, of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. 
So again, he gives God the credit all the way through here in chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Opposition had set in. The people of the land were trying to frustrate their purposes of building the wall that he had permission from the king to do, but these individuals were trying to stop them. And so he says, Hear, O our God. So he cried out to God for help, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. We find, uh, we, we could read on, but uh, verse 9 it says, We made our prayer to our God uh, when they were threatening violence against them. Verse 15, it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So we see that God was a part of this. He was involved in the, the guarding of the city. Uh, just as it says there in, in the psalm, uh, in, without God being involved uh, in the watch, it's all in vain. But it was not here because God was a part of it. That's one reason I think that the some of the commentaries believe that it had to do with this time, Ezra's time and Nehemiah's time. But as it says there, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And yet God was clearly a part of this. He was involved in it. The threat was there. The threat of violence. The opposition that was coming upon them. But through it all, they trusted in God and God was with them. I think the, the capstone to it all is in Nehemiah, the sixth chapter, and verse 15. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elud in 52 days. 52 days. A remarkably short period of time when you think about it. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. They recognized that. When you read all the opposition, even from within, some of the, the Jews were taking advantage of their brethren in the building wall. They just one obstacle after another, but they never lost sight of what they were to do, or Nehemiah never did, and he kept moving forward in spite of all opposition to do the work that he'd been called to do. And as it says here, that even their enemies perceived that this work was done by our God. Now, the question that comes up, or the, 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 uh, the focus, we've looked a little bit about the world in general, but have we as a church and as individuals taken God for granted? We're coming up to the Passover. We're coming up to a time when... We are to examine ourselves. We should be examining ourselves as we move forward toward Passover. And when we ask the question, have we as a church or as individuals taken God for granted, the, the easy answer is no. I don't take God for granted. We, we can say that. And that may be the right answer for you. But then again, it may not be. And unless we examine ourselves, how do we really know how we can answer that? This is a time for self-examination. We read of that in 
1 Corinthians 11th chapter where it says, let a man examine himself. We read of it in 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and verse 5, where he talks about examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. We, we need to be examining ourselves all through the year, but in the light of this, have we taken God for granted? Or have we taken it for granted that, well, this is the work of God and it'll all work out? I'd like to read a little bit from uh, Mr. Herb Armstrong's autobiography. I've been reading through it of late and very inspiring. I think that there are enough people around that have it. How many of you have a copy of the autobiography? Okay, that's a fair number of people. So if you don't have a copy of it, have never read it, you're new, then just ask around. I'm sure somebody would be more than happy to to uh, loan it to you, take good care of it. Uh, there's no more being printed as far as I know, but uh, it's a very uh, valuable source. And one of the, the uh, parts of it, and I've read a little bit of this to you before, so I'm not going to go through it in great detail, but Mr. Herman Armstrong was facing a crisis with his wife's health, and he had been crying out to God uh, time and again, and, and nothing seemed to be changing. And so he decided to fast about it. I'm not going to read about the whole fast, but I want to read a little bit about what he concluded. Uh, first of all, he, he realized that his mind had gotten taken away by this clay project. He was a special kind of clay that he was making formulas for various beauty salons and uh, you know, places that uh, he could sell. This is part of his job. He had to provide for his family. But at the end of his fast, he said, I had not stopped Bible study or prayer. I had not even realized that I had been diminishing it. But now I realized that I had actually become closer to this clay project than I was to God. It was fast becoming first in my mind, my interest, and my time. And God will not play second fiddle to anything. Now, he says, I wonder as I write how many of my readers are more wrapped up in their interest and in their hearts in some material business project or other interest than they are in God. Probably most of you who are reading this need what God brought me to do. In other words, needing to fast. And we're going to be doing that in a couple weeks here. I realize now that God had mercifully, in his wisdom and his love for me and my family, refused to answer my prayers to force me to fast and pray and come to see where I was unconsciously drifting. Sometimes God allows trials to come upon us. Sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers right away because there's something we need to learn. Now, I think that many of us know that, and oftentimes we say, well, I, I hope I can learn it quickly. Well, maybe what we need to learn is patience and perseverance and just growing in strength. Maybe that's the lesson. I don't know. But I, I do know this. When everything's easy, we, we don't grow strong. It's only when we have difficulties that we, we develop that strength that we need. One time we took a group of young people, mostly from South Carolina, 
Greenville area many years ago to Washington, D.C. We did it during that break uh, between, you know, around Christmas, New Year's time uh, because everybody had time off. But that's not always the warmest time of year. And our young folks from South Carolina didn't have heavy jackets. And I remember standing out by the Washington Monument because we were going to go up in it. And standing in line outside, there was still a pretty good line even at that time of year. And some of those young people had never been that cold in their entire lives. And it it made me think back on times in my life when I had to be cold and, and persevere. And I remember as a Boy Scout when I lived in England that I learned a lesson because I'd always heard that during the war, especially First World War, that some men just laid down and died because they were so miserable in the the trench warfare with the mud and the cold. And it never made sense until I slept in mud uh, one time and how easy it was to give up. I just didn't want to do anything. I was just happy they called off the, the jamboree there and sent everybody home. We didn't even have fire as such, we had to cook with charcoal, and charcoal is not very good to stay warm. But I remember it was so wet that the, the mud literally came through the ground cloth, and our sleeping bags were wet, and they're muddy, and it was totally miserable. I also remember that my parents had given me a, a summer sleeping bag. Uh, it was basically an army cloth made into a, a mummy bag, so it was about that thick. And they had no idea. I never told them. They're both gone now, and I never told them how cold it was. And maybe I've told you, but I, I, I can remember night after night on camping trips, uh, I was a very good fire builder because I was the first one up. And I learned how to build a fire quickly. But I would spend the night with a candle inside my sleeping bag, kind of in a fetal position, holding up and uh, staying warm. I never did burn it down, but just to stay warm. Now, until you are tried, until you are forced to go through some of the misery you can go through, and those who have lived up north can maybe relate to that, especially if you hunt or spend any time outdoors, it does help you to realize what you can do because we give up mentally before we give up physically. And there have been men that I've read of that have gone through things that I can't imagine how they could have survived it. I'm sure you've read of the same things, the, the obstacles that some people have gone through. And we, we tend to give up mentally before we do physically. And so God allows trials to come upon us. He wants us to grow strong. And so as Mr. Armstrong says here, he realized how merciful God was in this particular situation. Uh, In his wisdom and his love, God's love for us and my family, he refused to answer my prayers to force me to fast and pray to come to see where I was unconsciously drifting. Now, there's another story here that he gives on page 412. And uh, he's talking here about his first attempt at giving an evangelistic campaign. We'd call it a Tomorrow's World presentation today. And and the bottom line was that 
uh, he had attended this meeting that was very contentious, as, uh, just as a guest, and he, he did see these people about ready to come to fisticuffs, and, and he, uh, he stood up and, and spoke up and said, you know, that this, this, this is not God in our midst. This is Satan that we've allowed to be in, in here. And, and he then uh, asked them all to get down and, and pray at that time to rebuke Satan, and then they carried on the meeting and, and so forth. But after it was over, uh, they asked me if I would hold an evangelistic campaign for them in the church building they, re- they rented in Harrisburg. And he said, I, I never preached before to the public, only before these brethren in the Willamette Valley and at Oregon City. Just those are the only ones he preached at. As I had stated before, becoming a preacher was the very last thing I should ever have wanted to do. And to hold a public evangelistic campaign, it says, consternation seized me. By nature, I shrank from the idea. Yet here were these simple Bible-believing or Bible-loving people looking to me for leadership. And so, as inexperienced as he was, he didn't know how to, he was embarrassed to say no. So what did he do? Well, he said, well, brethren, I replied, I've never preached before a public audience in my life. All the revivals and evangelistic services I have attended have wound up in altar calls. And I'll tell you the truth, I simply could not do this without a lot of help from God. And I know that results will depend more on the prayers back of the meetings than on my preaching. In fact, the effectiveness of the preaching will depend on prayer and the extent to which I, am, I can allow God to speak through me. This would really be a very hard assignment for me. But I'll make you, brethren, a proposition. If every one of you here at this meeting will pledge yourselves right now to devote not less than one hour every day to earnest and believing and prevailing prayer for the success of these meetings, for God to help me and speak through me, for God to cause the ones uh, he is calling and drawing to attend, and for God to convert the ones he is calling. And if you will solemnly uh, pledge to keep up this hour or more a day of prayer, beginning now until the last night of the meetings, then I will undertake this campaign. And he was going to do it from about the 20th of December to whatever it was, January 1st. It was 11 days. It says, now it was their turn to be embarrassed. Perhaps some had been spending an hour a day in prayer, but I was sure most of them had not. Their tempers would not have boiled over uh, into the near fisticuffs or fistfights if they had. But as I had been too embarrassed to refuse their offer, they were too embarrassed to refuse mine. I don't have time to go through all of it, but the the point is that they, they pledged that they would. You know, I'm not sure. I'll be honest with you. I don't know what I would say after the first day, an hour, praying for the success of it. But I wonder how much time we do spend on prayer for these Tomorrow's World presentations and other things. You know, we're trying to build a house, as it were. We're trying to, we have a project to do the work of God. And I said in our meeting that we had, uh, the, the uh, meeting for all the employees, I quoted a statement that uh, when you come up against a problem, we will find a way 
or we will make one. And I think that's part of what we need to do. We need to find a way or make one. But I also pointed out, and I'm emphasizing today, the fact that with all of our finding, with all of our making, unless God is in it, it will never work. We desperately need God to be a part of what we do. Dr. Roderick C. Meredith made this statement in uh, the March-April 2011 article, Our Surrender to Christ. Uh, This is going to be coming up in the next issue of the Living Church News, just a little box at the bottom of an article. And I encourage you to read that. But here's what he said. Obviously, one of the primary ways we must prepare to become full sons of God is to feed on Christ by genuinely studying and saturating ourselves with the very word that he inspired. Many of us in the church do a little Bible reading every day, or at least most days. But how many of us consciously try to carefully read, meditate on, and drink in the very mind and heart of God and feed on Christ by profoundly studying the Bible with heartfelt intensity and accompanying prayer. How many of us cry out to God as we study, Teach me your ways, O God, and lead me in your paths. How many of us try to regularly meditate on God's Word, on His law, and on His plan, and try to truly have the very mind of Christ in this this way, and reflect Christ's mind in everything we think, say, and do. Remember, Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I think it's time that we, we really meditate and think about how much is Christ the center of our work. I, I do believe that most of us pray every day. And we study on a daily basis. But like Mr. Armstrong had to learn, was that first in his life? Or is God just a part of everything, but he's not the focus of everything in our lives? I can't answer that question for you. I have to look in the mirror and ask the question for me. But I'm encouraging all of you to do the same. We live in a world that is building without God. Mankind is putting great effort into constructing civilization his own way. But every day that passes should tell us that it isn't working. We want peace and prosperity, but our efforts in this world are in vain. We need to look at our personal efforts as we build our personal houses and our families. How are we doing? How is it working? Are our families working the way that they should? Or is there something that is missing? That perhaps a little bit more effort to draw close to God, to have the mind of Christ in us would help. Can we do better? Is God truly at the center of all of our efforts? And in doing the work of God, we put great effort into it. We have people that get there early to to work. They leave late. Nothing wrong with that, although I want all of our employees to have balance in all those things, to get exercise, to eat properly, to 
have proper recreation and that sort of thing. But we can put forth a lot of effort, but if God is not central to it, if He's not there with us every step of the way, then it may be that we're doing it in vain. We constantly explore how we can do the work of God more effectively. We look for ways of doing it. But unless God is with us, again, it will be in vain. God is truly at the center of these efforts, or must be truly at the center of these efforts. Let's just notice again Psalm 127 in closing. Unless the eternal builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise early. In other words, just putting our own efforts into it. And to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows. But he shows that those who have God at the center of everything, he gives his beloved sleep. So brethren, as we approach the Passover, let us evaluate ourselves in the light of this passage of Scripture.